0: Right, we're going to get into Joshua chapter 6 and we're going to talk about preparing for spiritual battle. Mm. How many feel like you're in a battle? How many feel like you're in a spiritual battle? How many know you're in a spiritual battle? Amen. That's just a reality for us all. i got to tell you, whenever we do anything for the Lord and make any moves toward God, we can expect that we're going to get some pushback from the enemy of our soul. If you're serving the Lord, if you've made that stand in your life individually or in your family, and you said, we're going to serve the Lord, then you're going to get pushback from the enemy. There are things that God wants you to accomplish and do, promises that God has given to you and your family that you can read about in the Word of God, and you can read those things and say, this is what God wants for me, this is what God wants for my family, and it's like you could pretend you were Joshua and the Israelites, and you're facing the promised land. You're facing that territory that God said is yours. This is your promise. You could see yourself that way by looking at God's word, and you could see these are the promises of God. This is what God wants for me. This is what God wants for my family. And it's like you got to take that land. But as soon as you take a step toward the things that God wants for you, you can know there's going to be pushback. And i tell you, would you please pray with me? I'd like to open up and just pray for a minute because God has been on the move at CFA. There have been some young people who have recently given their lives to Jesus Christ. And uh, and they're coming. They're coming to church. They're starting to invite people. They're excited about it. But you know what? The enemy would want to do everything he can to snatch them away. And I got to tell you, I got, a, I got a text message about one thirty last night. And, got, and I, do, I wasn't awake at 1.30, so I didn't get the test messages until 6.30, all right? But uh, I got this message 1 30 in the morning just saying, hey, I don't know what's up. I don't know if I'm just going to quit at all. And, uh, and so I prayed, and I sent some messages at 6.30. And then uh, I called today, and this young man was, I said, how's your day going today? It didn't sound like it was going so great at 1.30 in the morning. And he said, I had a great day today. I said, thank you, Jesus, for answered prayer. And I said, you know what? The devil wants to take you out. I know that. I know that. The devil wants to take you out. Listen, the devil would do anything he can to take you out of this fight. He'll He'll do whatever he can. So don't be unaware. Don't be ignorant of the fact that you are in a spiritual battle. What battles are you facing? I want you to begin to think about that right now. What battles are you facing in your life? Is it something going on in your relationships, in your family? Is there something happening at work, maybe in your marriage, maybe your finances? There's something going on in your life. What battles are you facing? Are you, are you struggling because you know that you could do the right thing here, but sometimes you don't do the right thing? There's a sin struggle in your, in your life, in your flesh. And you're warring against those temptations and those struggles. What battle are you facing? You see, spiritual warfare is real, and it's tied to the very real battles that we face in the natural. Satan is a thief. He is a killer. He is out to devour and to destroy us. And on top of this, our own sinful nature is at war inside of us and will lead us down paths of destruction in the natural and in the spiritual, how many understand that God wants us to live our lives in victory? Pastor Anthony just let us in that worship time. Uh, there's going to be a victory. He came that we may have life. Jesus did, and have life abundantly. And right before that, in John ten ten, what did the Bible say? The thief came to kill, steal, and destroy, but Jesus came that we might have life. How many? That's a better deal right there. I want Jesus. I want to be on his side. He wants our lives to be extraordinary. That's what that abundant word or full life translation, you see that in the scripture in John 10, 10, when it says he wants to give you abundant life or a a full life. If you look that up in the Greek, you understand this means extraordinary. It means not the usual. God has an extraordinary life for you, a full life. In the story of the Battle of Jericho, we learn three principles of spiritual conflict and victory. We can learn these three things, what to do before the battle, what to do during the battle, and what to do after the victory. We can apply these three principles to our lives no matter what spiritual challenges that we face. So as you think about the battles you're facing, think about these principles. Tonight I'm going to cover the first principle which comes before the battle. We're just going to hang on this one for tonight. And then next week, we're going to look at what to remember during the battle and what to do after the victory so that the enemy does not take us by surprise and rise again. I'm going to get into that. But how many, you know, in horror movies, that's it's just going to happen, right? They're going to kill the bad guy, and then they're going to, like, drop the weapon, and they're going to walk away, and then all of a sudden the bad guy gets up with the weapon. You know, it just happens. It's it very predictable. And uh, that could happen to us, too, if we're not careful about what we do after the victory. If you don't act correctly after the victory, it can come and take you by surprise again. You see, here's the first principle tonight about before the battle. Before the battle, remember that you fight from victory, not just for victory. You are fighting from victory, not just for victory. Sometimes, even in the songs we sing, sometimes it feels like we've got to fight for the victory, when in reality, we're fighting from the victory. We have already won. We are already victorious. So we may not see that in the natural at the moment because we're looking at the battle, we're looking at the things that are happening, but we need to remember spiritually, we are already victors. We're already victorious in Jesus Christ. Turn to the Bible, Joshua chapter 6, verses 1 to 5, and let's take a look. It says this, now the gates of Jericho were tightly shut. Because the people were afraid of the Israelites. No one was allowed to go in or out or out or in. But the Lord said to Joshua, I have given you Jericho, its king, and all its strong warriors. Whew. Man, someone needs to claim this tonight in your battle, right? The Lord tells him, I have given you Jericho, its king and all its strong warriors. You and your fighting men should march around the town once a day for six days. Seven priests will walk ahead of the ark, each carrying a ram's horn. On the seventh day, you are to march around the town seven times with the priests blowing the horns. And when you hear the priests give one long blast on the ram's horns... Have all the people shout as loud as they can, and then the walls of the town will collapse and the people can charge straight into the town. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. And let's pray for all the battles as we begin this message. Father, we just come to you and we thank you for the word of God. We thank you, Lord, that the word of God is life to us. It's food and bread. Lord, it sustains us. It leads us. It guides us in the ways that we should go, Lord. Your word is sweet. Your word is good. Lord, we thank you for it, Lord. We pray that you would teach us tonight, God. We pray that we would devour this word, Lord, that we would chew on it, Lord, God. We pray, Father, that it would make a difference in our life and in the battles that we face. Lord, we pray tonight, God, for all those in various battles, whether marriage or relationships or children or finances or jobs, whatever it may be, God. And we pray for the young uh, people in our church who are coming to the Lord and how there's a battle to take them out. Lord, we pray, God, right now, Lord, that you would touch us, Lord, that you would bless us, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, in these battles and help us to remember tonight even before this battle begins that we are already victorious, Lord, that we fight from victory in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So Jesus has already defeated every spiritual enemy. Ephesians 1.21 says this, now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. Whew. He is supreme. Ephesians 6.10 and 11 says this, and a final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. How many, how many know the devil has strategies, right? But we have nothing to fear because we have the armor of God. We can stand firm and nothing will touch us. Colossians 2, 13 to 15 says this. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. But then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us, and he took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed or he stripped off the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by the victory over them on the cross. Come on, give a shout to Jesus. Hallelujah. That is a powerful verse of Scripture. Let me just say, that is powerful. And I love it how the Lord just rubs it in the enemy's face too. He publicly shamed them in what he did on the cross. They thought they were putting him to shame by stripping him naked and beating him and putting the crown of thorns on and the robe on and putting him up on the cross like that and mocking him saying, if you're really the son of God, then come down off that cross. The enemy thought he was putting Jesus to shame, but Jesus was putting the enemy to shame. Hallelujah. Publicly, what Jesus accomplished for us, wow, he has given us victory. Consider the factors in Joshua's victory. First of all, there was the fear of the Lord. In verse 1, we read this. Now, the gates of Jericho were tightly shut because the people were afraid of the Israelites. No one was allowed to go out or in. Now, let me just say something here tonight because I think sometimes we get things backwards. We tend to focus and talk about our fear. We tend to focus and talk about the fact that we got to be, we're afraid of this and we're afraid of that and don't be fearful and all those things. And that's a great message. Do not fear. In fact, it's a message of Joshua, right? All right? Be strong and courageous. Do not fear. The Lord your God is with you. All right? That's a great message. But listen to this. In verse 1, the fear is not about the Israelites. It's not on the Israelites. It's not their fear of the people of Jericho. It is the fear of the people of Jericho from the Israelites. They were afraid of God. How many have ever, like, you know, sharks? That's, like, my worst nightmare. It's my only recurring nightmare. I think it started when I was a little kid, and my parents were watching Jaws in the living room. You know, and I see this great white shark, and so now if I have a bad dream, it's going to be the shark. That's what's going to happen. I'm always in the water, and the shark is coming at me, and I'm I'm afraid of this shark. But I got to tell you, have you ever heard, uh, you know, the shark uh, conservationists? Anybody ever listen to those? There's some crazy people. Just YouTube it. There's this girl out in Hawaii. She swims with great whites. It's, she's crazy. All right? She's crazy. But when you talk to these shark conservationists, they'll always tell you, the shark is more afraid of you than you are of it. Yeah, you ever hear that? And Everybody's like, yeah, sure, right. But look at that. The most fearsome predator in all the ocean is more afraid of me than I am of it. And if you look at the stats, it probably bears it out. I mean, we, the, the world kills, uh, what, over a billion sharks a year? And sharks only kill about 40 humans a year? all over the planet. They don't kill that many. That's not a big, big percentage. But we sure kill a lot of them. So this is the same thing. How many know that the enemy is way more afraid of the follower of Christ than we should be of him? Understand that. He might be like a shark. He might like be a roaring lion. He might be this terrible thief and murderer. But guess what? He is nothing compared to Jesus Christ living in us. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We have nothing to fear, child of God. You have nothing to fear when Jesus is with you. So the fear of the Lord. If you have the fear of the Lord, believe me, your enemies have more fear of the Lord. You have God on your side. Exodus 23, says this. I will send my terror ahead of you and create panic among all the peoples whose lands you invade. I will make all your enemies turn and run. That was God's promise before they ever entered the promised land. I'm going to make those enemies afraid of you. They're going to turn and run. This is what God is saying. uh, Satan has no power over us any longer. Some of us need to stop acting like victims. Stop acting like we're defeated. If you have Jesus Christ in your life, you are powerful in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have everything you need to to defeat the enemy. (laughs) Anything you need. And don't let anybody tell you you can be possessed by a demon or, or demons could, like, you know, take you and do all kinds of stuff to you. Listen to me. Child of God, you have all power over hell because Jesus Christ lives in you. They flee. They flee. They flee because Jesus lives in you. Is society today afraid of what God's people may do? Probably not but it's mainly because the church hasn't done very much to display the power of God to a skeptical world. Church, when are we going to rise up and show the power of God? Paul says, I didn't come with persuasive speech, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Child of God, when we act and we live out what God wants us to, then probably society will start being afraid of what the church can do. Because it will start affecting people. People will begin to come to Christ in numbers that we can't begin to count. What we need today is an army of men and women who will not compromise their beliefs. But who will march forward by faith in the Spirit's power. We need a church that is willing to rattle the gates of hell. That's what we need. I'm so excited about our events coming up, Pastor, man. Because, that night on the men's event, it's going to be a war cry that night. It's going to be amazing, guys. You need to invite your friends out to this thing because people are going to get saved that night. Man, we're going to come together. If God's going to bond us as brothers in the Lord Jesus. Man, it's going to be like an army coming together. And we won't be the same after that night. I'm telling tell you, this is what God needs. He needs an army of men and women who will not compromise their beliefs. We need a church willing to rattle the gates of hell. We need a church that is like what the Song of Songs in chapter six, verse four describes. It says this, that that the church is as majestic or as awesome or terrifying as an army with billowing or rising and raised banners. That's the way Song of Solomon described the army of the Lord. It's It's like an army with raised banners coming at you and marching at you. I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. Anybody ever watch Lord of the Rings? You see the army? Armies of Gondor are coming you know the um, the armies of ministereth and they're marching with the banners it looks fearsome it looks fearsome this is the way the world should see the church. We are marching with raised banners. we have the cross before us amen it, and and this is this is a terrifying presence to the enemy when the church bands together in unity as an army for God. this is what God wants. Can the enemy hear you and see you coming who Man, we focus so much on how much the enemy is coming and prowling. Can the enemy hear you and see you? Are you Satan's personal nightmare? Is he afraid when you wake up every morning because he knows you're a warrior? The second thing we see is the promise of the Lord in verse 2. But the Lord said to Joshua, I have given you Jericho, its king, and all its strong warriors. Notice the tense of the verb give there. It says given. Given the victory has already been won. They just needed to claim the victory and obey the Lord's instructions. How many know God always has instructions for us, right? This is a key component in this battle. You have to believe what the Lord says, but then you have to obey His instructions. Very often, God says, This is the way it is. If you do this, then here's what will take place I've given you the victory. But you must do this. God always works with us. That's the way God is. God is not like this puppet master that decides for you, you know, the fate of your life and tells you what to do. And you must love me and makes you love him and and, and controls your every move. God always says, I love you extravagantly. And here's what I'm promising you. Here, it's all laid out. It's yours. You don't have to do anything, but just follow these instructions. Here's what you do. And God says, if you're willing to work with me, God says, if you're willing to follow me, if you're willing to show your faith and live out your faith, then these blessings are yours. This is our God. He's an awesome God. Victorious Christians know the promises of God. Victorious Christians believe the promises of God. And victorious Christians reckon on the promises of God. Of God. What does that word reckon mean? You know, I think the word reckon, I think of Andy Griffith, you know. Will I reckon? You know, I always think that, it, you know, the word reckon isn't just some southern hillbilly term, you know. There, there's, there's a good meaning to this word. It means to count as true in your life what God says about you in his word. Let me repeat it. To reckon on something means to count as true in your life what God says about you in his word. So if you reckon on the word, you're saying to the Lord, the Lord says, this is what I know about you, and you read it, you believe it, and you count it as true. Lord, I'm counting this as true. You say I'm an overcomer, I'm an overcomer. You say I have the ability to resist the enemy and he will flee, then I have the ability to resist the enemy and he will flee. If, Lord, you say I won't be tempted beyond what I can bear, but that you're faithful and with every temptation you provide a way of escape so that I can stand up under it, then I know you've provided the trap door. I know you've made a way for me to escape. I count it as true in my life. This is what you can do. If God tells you that you're more than a conqueror, You are more than a conqueror. Count on it. You actually, you must actually live like a conqueror, though, through Jesus Christ. Not as defeated, whining, complaining, blaming, attention hogging, or an energy-sucking victim. Let me repeat that because that's the way victims act. They're defeated, whining, complaining, blaming, attention hogging, and energy-sucking. That's a victim. Don't be that person, because that's not who you are in Christ Jesus. Oh, man, you're attractive in Christ Jesus. You're a magnet spiritually in Christ Jesus. You are a source of hope and joy in Christ Jesus. You're an overcomer and a problem solver in Christ Jesus. Man, you're, you're a fun person to be around in Christ Jesus. People see you and they want to be with you because you're so uplifting and so encouraging. And because, for crying out loud, you do what the world never do. You actually live out what you believe. You actually believe it. You're true. You believe in God and he truly lives inside of you. You are victorious. But here's the thing. The only way to know the promises of God as a victorious Christian is to spend time meditating on them. How can you know them? Victorious Christians know the promises of God. You can't know them unless you meditate on them. You have to read the promises of God in the Bible. You have to then think on them and chew on them, and, and you have to pray them out loud. That's what it means to meditate. It means to repeat them out loud to yourself. You have to say these things so that it gets inside of you. Joshua 1.8 says, study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so that you will be sure to obey everything written in it. One of the first things that we got to do when we come to Christ as a new believer is someone hands us a Bible. It's really bad if we just say, I'm not a reader. Well, if you're not a reader, well, then maybe you're a listener. I don't know. They have Bibles that will read to you. You know, we have a lot of technology that can do that. or We get you a set of CDs, at least listen to it, but you go, "I'm not a listener either. As short as pension span, well, you're already going to lose the battle here because if you don't read and you don't listen and you don't want to do any of that, you'll never know the promises of God, and then you can't be victorious. You have to know God's promises, and they are good. So the first thing we got to do as a young believer is begin to say, okay, you may not be a reader today, but you will become a reader. You may not be a good listener, but you will become a good listener because the more you hear and the more you soak that in, the more your faith grows. And the more those promises become realities in your life that you're living out before God. Amen? Amen. So we got to listen. Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing, that is, hearing the good news about Christ. The only way to reckon on the promises of God is to deliberately make a daily choice to surrender your negative thoughts to Christ. Declare the truth and obey. I mean, you know what I'm talking about when I say our negative thoughts. We all do negative talk. We give negative self-talk. We we have these poor human because it's part of being a simple nature. It's part of our human habits. We down ourselves, or we've listened to the voices that other people have said things about us. This is a constant struggle. Someone calls us a failure. We begin to think we're a failure. Things happen in our life. We just begin to be negative about you know become very cynical about people and about. Ourselves and situations, ah, oh, it'll never happen. You know, God gave you a dream a long time ago, it never came to pass. Ah, it'll never. Then you begin not to not to uh, believe anything. You begin not to ex- to believe anything will come to pass because you didn't get that one thing, or or something happened that's different than you thought it would happen, and you get those negative thoughts. I got to tell you something. You got to start conquering that by reading the promises of God and reckoning on those promises, and start believing. So take that negative thought and take it out of your life and begin to share with yourself what God says about you. You can believe all the promises you want, but still not reckon on them. How many know that? You can say, I believe it. I believe God's word, but not reckon on them. This would be like having a check in your hand and knowing the money is yours, but never endorsing it or depositing it into your bank account. Lots of people walk around with a Bible in their hand, and they say, I believe it, but they never deposit it. They never cash it. They never count it as truth for them in their life. Don't do that. Don't be that person. You know, I, there used to be, I don't know, was it sports and sports guys. I, I remember I went golfing one time, and I showed up with this uh, really old bag of golf clubs, you know, it looked pretty bad. You know, we're on a nice golf course. Someone said, don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. <laughs> he, he let me borrow his clubs, which were really nice. <laughs> he said, don't be that guy. <laughs> he didn't want to take me out on the cart. So what I'm telling you, Christian, is don't, don't be that person that carries your Bible but never reckons on those promises and those truths about you. Believe them. Christ has conquered the world, the flesh, and the devil. If we reckon on the truth, we can conquer through him. And then there are the instructions of the Lord, verses 3 to 5. You and your fighting men should march around the town once a day for six days. Seven priests will walk ahead of the ark, each carrying a ram's horn. And on the seventh day, you are to march around the town seven times with the priests blowing the horns. And when you hear the priests give one long blast on the ram's horn, have all the people shout as loud as they can. And then the walls of the town will collapse and the people can change charge straight into the town. Now, how many know these instructions? They didn't come from the mind of Joshua. I mean, he's a you know great military genius. Didn't think about this. You know, he didn't think well, let's get some horns and let's put the priests out front. You know, and and uh, let's just march around and just just you know, eventually on that seventh day we're just all going to shout. You know, that'll just be a good way to conquer the city. You know, how many uh, we're going to get into the city a little bit more next week. But this city was a massive fortress. These walls were like crazy big. And there was double walls, by the way. There was like one wall and then an inner wall as well. So it was like, I mean, marching around and shouting and blowing horns. I mean, that's not that intimidating for the people inside. (laughs) This did not come from the mind of Joshua. These plans came entirely from the Lord. And here's the truth that we should all believe. And there's up on the board. There is no problem too hard for our God to solve. And there is nothing that he cannot handle. Before the battle even begins, you're looking at the problem. You're already looking at how impenetrable that wall is. You're looking going, there's just no way. I, I don't know how to fix this. My marriage is done. It's destroyed. I don't know what to do. It's an impenetrable fortress. I don't know how this is ever gonna get fixed. My kids, they hate me. I never see them and never talk to them anymore. I made a mess of things, and I won't have a relationship. It's an impenetrable penetrable fortress. It's like Jericho. I'll never get there. And sometimes we look at that fortress, but we have to remember this. There is no problem too hard for our God to solve. And there is nothing that he cannot handle. We don't have the answers. I wouldn't think of what Joshua said. The Lord thought of that plan. God has a way that you haven't even thought of. God is the greatest problem solver. He knows what to do. We just have to get in touch with him. Amen? Oh, man, I hope you get encouraged by this because I want to see you become victorious. You are already victorious, but I want you to see more of these victories in your life as you begin to believe that nothing's too hard for God. Whatever battle you're facing, the Lord has a plan, and he will make a way for you to be a conqueror through Christ Jesus. When I was a struggling young teenager, just a brand-new Christian, 15 years old, I was convicted by, by the Holy Spirit about some sins in my life, all right? There was some temptation and sin, and I had a lot of guilt, and I wanted so bad to obey the Lord and to live a holy life. I mean, I was really on fire for God, but because I was so on fire for God and spending all that time in church services and around the altar for all kinds of time and just, I I was soaking it all in, the Holy Spirit convicted me. And there were some things the Lord said, I love you, but I love you too much to to let you keep doing this. I love you too much, and I have a better way for you. How many know that whatever God asks you to change, it's always for your benefit and for his glory, amen? God, whatever he says, it's not like God is a fun sucker. He's not trying to, like, be the big, bad, you know, boring God that you just got to, you know, dredge your way through life. That's not God. He's not saying, oh, no, no, you can't do that, only do this. You know, that might have been your mom or pops, you know, whenever we went anywhere. They're just shh, children to be seen and not heard, you know, whatever it might be. I think the older you are, the truer that was, you know, for people in a previous generation. But I can tell you, that's not God. He's not this cosmic fun sucker. Our God, if he says that's a sin, he's putting guardrails in your life. What he's doing is saying, don't do this because it'll destroy you. Don't do this because it'll harm you. Don't do this because it'll tear you up. Sin is only pleasurable for a season. But the world isn't honest. These people may love the things that they do, but they are in pain. Ask counselors all over the place. They don't know what to do. They have so many scars, so many issues, so many pains. Sin brings a lot of issues and problems. God says, here's the guardrails. So I just want to tell you, when I was a young teenager, I was struggling. I wanted so bad to obey the Lord. One night, I pleaded for help, and the Lord spoke to me, and he said, here's your, here's your solution found in 1 Corinthians 10.13. That kind of became my life verse, and this week I was reminded of as with another, with Carl, we were we were in the office together, encouraging each other on some challenges and talking and man talk. And he asked me in the middle of this, in four minute plank I was doing on the floor, he said, "What's your life verse?" <laughs> you know, just came back to my mind, First Corinthians ten thirteen. For there is no temptation that has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And I took that right then and there, that no matter what my temptations were or the tests that came into my life, God would always provide a way out. That was the answer. He had a trap door. He had a secret door. And all I had to do was find it. No matter what situation I was in, there was always a door that God would provide the way out. And that became powerful for me as a teenager because i was like, I'm powerless over these things. I don't know why I do these things I don't want to do. But God was saying, there's a door. There's always a door. Look for it and go through it. I'm making a way for you. I'm here to tell you tonight, there's a door for you. No matter what issue you're facing in your life personally, there is a door. Find that door. Amen? How many situations has the Lord helped you out of in your life? And many you could testify. God has helped you out. God always knows what he will do. Our responsibility is to wait for him to tell us all that we need to know and then obey it. God's plans for conquering Jericho seem foolish. But they worked. Our God enjoys and delights in using people and plans that seem foolish to the world. Check this out, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 29. It says, remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world or God chose those who are low-born, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. Whew. It doesn't matter who we are. The Bible just said we could be low-born, people of no stature, people with no power, people of no intelligence, but yet God glorifies, he glorifies himself in using those that the world considers weak. Why? Because he has everything you need. If you just place your faith in Jesus Christ, he gives you everything you need. So do that. The plan of God said to march around the city once a day for six days. Seven priests were to walk ahead of the ark carrying ram's horns. On the seventh day, they were to march around seven times while the priests blew the horns. On the final long blast of horns, the people were to shout as loud as they could. And at this, the walls of the city would collapse and the Israelites would charge straight in. This plan, it emphasizes that number seven. Check this out. Seven priests, seven trumpets, seven days of marching, seven circuits of the city on the seventh day. The number is written clearly into the life of Israel. The, sab- the Sabbath is celebrated on the seventh day of the week. Seven weeks from Passover is Pentecost. The seventh year is the sabbatical year. And after 49 years, which is seven times seven, comes the year of Jubilee. Three of Israel's feasts fall in the seventh month, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Seven is the number of perfection in biblical numerology. The Hebrew word translated seven is the word Shiva. It comes from a root word meaning to be full or to be satisfied. When God finished creating the heavens and the earth, he rested on the seventh day, and he sanctified it. He, this gave the number seven a significance. So there were seven promises in God's covenant with Abraham and seven branches on the candlestick in the tabernacle. Anything involving the number seven was especially sacred to the Jews. It spoke of God's ability to finish whatever he started. Have you heard that before the battle even began, God wants you to know that he will finish what he starts. Philippians 1.6 says this, And I am certain that God who began a good work in you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Jesus Christ returns. In conclusion tonight, listen, think about this for a second and how it applies to you. There were two types of trumpets that the assembly of Israelites used. Those made of silver and then the ram's horns. The silver trumpets were used by the priests to signal the camp when something significant was happening. Numbers chapter 10 describes how these trumpets were used to call the community to assemble or to call them to break camp. But they were used especially to sound the alarm during times of war. That's what the silver trumpets were used for. The ram's horns were used primarily for celebrations. The common word for the ram's horn is what? The shofar. The shofar in Hebrew means trumpet. The word ram's horn is jobal, which is the root of the word jubilee. The year of jubilee was the 50th year after seven sabbaticals. and was a special time of celebration in Israel. The priests blew the ram's horns to what? To proclaim liberty throughout all the land. Now check this out. Prior to the battle of Jericho, the Lord instructed the priests to use ram's horns they weren't declaring war on jericho because there was no war they were announcing a year of jubilee for israel in the new land i'm going to tell you something god is saying get out the ram's horn and start celebrating my name because you have already won the victory Church, you're not defeated. You're not. In, God has already won the victory for you. Romans eight thirty seven says this: overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Overwhelming victory. What I love about this, we'll get to next week. But those walls, they fell on top of each other. The Bible says they came down and fell on top, so that there was like a ramp that they could just charge right in to the city. The wall. the city shall fall down. God's promises will never fail. God's people don't simply fight for victory, but fight from victory because the Lord has already won the battle. Reckon on his promises. Obey what he tells you to do, and you shall have the victory.